once again, every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Gross. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science. Joining us today is Dr. Samir Zeki, who will be telling us about art and the brain. In addition, you can find out just exactly what is daylight savings time for. Stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. Leaving me as Brian Gerke. Glad yes. to have you back again. Well, you made it pretty quick this time, huh? Yeah, I just ran right over here from the uh, air studio. I, uh, you know. That's a long, long run, I, I believe. And amazingly, he's not out of breath, which is I know. It's crazy. It's the miracles of science, gentlemen. Yes. And ladies. I don't know if ladies listen to this program. Hmm, I wonder. If they did, I'd, I'd certainly wish they would give Maybe me a call. Maybe we need to get more ladies on the show. That, that might help. All right. Um, so, what's going on in science this week? Uh, many things, I guess. Well, okay, so uh, are you interested in uh, maintaining diversity in your species? Uh, of course, I believe uh, the key to survival is diversity, right? It, it is indeed. So what are your, some of your favorite endangered species on your list? Uh, the panda. Uh, the panda. panda. Uh, They're cute. They're cute. Koalas. Pandas. Pandas. Koalas are very nice. Dodo. Wow, we missed the dodo. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Penguins. Pen- I guess, I mean, I guess that's why, like, the World Wildlife Foundation didn't choose endangered flatworms as their, as their uh, mascot. They chose the panda because it's cuter. It is, it is certainly cuter. Cuter than uh, snails, it turns out. You can cuddle with a snail. If you're in that kind of mood. If you haven't, you should try. It's a lot of fun. Aren't you an endangered species as well, Charles? What's that? Aren't you an endangered species? I'm I'm the only one of my kind, so... Oh, man. So I'm the star, stars hasn't killed you yet. Not yet, but I'm, I'm certainly hoping it'll end the pain. Yeah, I'm on my last life right now, so... Uh, well, so as it turns out, those snails are endangered species in certain parts of uh, really? the world. Really? What kind of snails? Cliff-dwelling snails, as it turns out. Uh-huh. So what it turns out is that snails uh, that exist on these cliffs, which are frequently climbed by mountain climbers, uh, actually have started losing their diversity. And really? It's in, like, what, different sizes, different shell colors, different... They're, they're basically they're finding fewer and fewer of these uh, uh, snails residing on these cliffs. They're finding fewer of them um, in the ground around the, where the parts where people are climbing, and basically the, the idea is that more people climbing around these uh, rocks basically ruining the diversity of snails. So we're there. disturbing their environment. Pretty much, pretty much. off the rocks and 
and so on. Yeah. Sounds like life on the edge for these cliff-dwelling snails. It then. is. I mean, they're they're in the risk of snuffing it off the place of the planet here. So why are scientists worried about this? Uh, well, they're just actually interested in to see if things such as snails could actually be affected by uh, things like rock climbing. And in fact, you know, they didn't think it should be because rock climbing, for instance, is thought to be very eco-friendly. Right. But in fact, they they looked into little crooks and crevices in the in the cliffs and found that there are fewer snail shells being left and all kinds of uh, strange things like that. Huh. So people are just amazed by the size of the effect and that even, you know, things that are supposedly eco-friendly like rock climbing are still causing uh, all kinds of damage. Wow, even the most modest amount of disturbance can affect a lot, huh? It, it turns out that that's the case because of people using rocks as their own private jungle gym. <laughs> But uh, so that's that's the question. So, but the bigger question now is like, how can we then allow people to climb in the rocks and still maintain the diversity of of those cuddly snails? That's and, difficult, and that remains to be seen. Uh, but this is, uh, if anyone's interested in maintaining the snail diversity, you can look in the uh, April edition of Conservation Biology, and this was work that was done by uh, Doug Larson of the University of Gulf. <laughs> Okay, well, here's some food for thought. Actually, two quick stories. Okay. Uh, the first one concerns the production of vanilla beans. Vanilla beans. I like yes. vanilla. I yes, vanilla is awesome. Good. It's like my favorite flavor. I like vanilla on top of vanilla. Mm. That's how much I like vanilla. All right. Yum. Yeah. Mm. But it turns out that in Madagascar, where they, they uh, make the real vanilla beans, they tattoo the beans when they're still young. They tattoo the beans? They tattoo the beans. A 10 serial number is uh, applied to them so that... Uh, to each bean? Yes. Isn't the bean like the size of like a vanilla bean? Uh, yeah. It is, but uh, they're also worth one dollar once they're on the market. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and uh, since the average income is like eight hundred bucks per person there, so it, it actually pays to have this labor-intensive procedure done. Well, that's uh, certainly an interesting tidbit. So people go through all the trouble of tattooing <laughs> vanilla beans. Yeah. So if anyone wants to know more, this was a little tidbit from the recent issue of CNE News. But uh, here's the real story. I thought that was the real story. That's that's no? the best uh, piece of science I've heard all week. <laughs> really? The tattooing of vanilla beans. <laughs> okay, here's something a little bit more palatable, I guess. It's concerning peanuts. Okay, are they tattooing the peanuts? I like too? peanuts too. That's my second favorite flavor. Oh. Well, your your other favorite bean, right? You're making me hungry, Charles. Uh, Frank, you're Frank. You're making me hungry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Charles is making me hungry too. Just this is kind of looking at him. People usually get hungry looking at me. Right. I think it's those zone bars. Okay, what about peanuts? But peanuts. So they're developing a technique for people who are allergic to peanuts. Apparently, some people do get hives and other rashes. Right, right. And sometimes it can be deadly. So uh, a team led by Steve Taylor at the University of uh, Nebraska have made this drug, TNX-901, which is supposed to prevent your uh, immune system from overreacting to peanuts. So you take this drug uh, before you eat the peanuts or something like that? Or? I think it's something that's like an ongoing thing. Right. But the idea is that um, basically your peanuts, they make your body produce immunoglobin E, okay. an antibody, which uh, somehow I guess you overproduce it and starts attacking your body. Body cells. Sort of an autoimmune response type thing. Right. So this drug is actually uh, a different type of uh, monoclonal antibody, uh, immunoglobulin G1, and basically that sort of uh, mitigates the effect of the, uh, the E antibodies, and as a result, you can reduce the reaction to peanuts. Well, that's actually a, a big problem, I think, because a lot of people have to watch uh, what they eat, and sometimes they right. get caught unaware right. by eating a little bit of peanut. Mm -hmm. And they're without peanut butter sandwiches, which is truly deprived childhood, I have to say. Peanut yeah. butter and jelly sandwiches. Well, yeah. But then again, they don't have to have celery with peanut butter, which oh. was certainly the worst snack ever invented by mankind, I think. I, I didn't know that was possible. It, it's, it's rancid. So I guess if anyone wants more, uh, no more, they can go to the New England Journal of Medicine, Volume 348.
guys been feeling the strain lately? The strain? The strain. I can't the strain take it anymore. The pressure, depending on which direction you're facing. Uh, well, I feel the stress, but I don't know about the strain. Strain. Well, strain is important, as it turns out. Yeah. The first results from LIGO have been... Re- LIGO. Isn't um, it a brand of, uh, of canned tuna? I wouldn't say. I don't sounds, know. It sounds kind of like Lego, which is certainly not a brand of, of Cantuna. No. But the Lego I'm talking about, no, is actually the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Oh, that one. Which is it's uh, pretty huge, isn't it? It's a big project. It's actually there are actually two of them. What it is, it's a it's a detector for gravitational waves, which are ripples in uh, the space-time continuum, effectively oh. mm-hmm. created by say two very massive objects orbiting around each other and sort of sending out these gravitational waves, which mm-hmm. are very small in amplitude or very small in amplitude that we can detect. But the basic idea is we take two four-kilometer-long pipes and Mm -hmm. put them in an L-shape. If a gravitational wave comes by, it'll stretch one of the pipes and compress the other one by a very, very small amount. In fact, the amount expected is so small as to be smaller than the size of a proton. Wow. In fact, like 10,000 times smaller than the size of a proton. And so the way we detect this this change in length is by shining a laser beam down each leg of this detector Uh and then bouncing it back and interfering the two beams with one another, and that creates a pattern of light and dark spots. And as the length of the paths that lasers traverse changes, that changes this, this pattern very slightly, and so detecting this is actually a very subtle thing to do because it is such a small change in length. And that's so why how so do you know it's not due to like thermal fluctuations in the pipes? You've got to you've got to be very careful to, to normalize that all out. They probably have mm-hmm. to have very good measurements of of the length well, and so on. So because uh, if you measure the length, whatever you're measuring the length with will also change if a gravitational right, wave right, comes by. So right. presumably, if you ch- measure a change in the length, that means that it's not a gravitational wave. Whereas if you don't, so I'm sure there are a lot of cross checks that they have to do to make right, sure that this happens. Right. They also have two different detectors of this size, one in Louisiana and one in Washington State, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so they can make sure that if they both see this effect, then it's probably a real effect, and if right. they don't, then it's not. In any case, they've uh, finally come out with their first results, first real science results, mm-hmm. and they don't see anything. Oh, So there's no way. Which, uh, which is not a surprise, because it's... Uh, it's tough, yeah. It's not even expected. Actually, LIGO is not even expected to be sensitive enough to see the kind of gravitational waves that people expect. They're going and looking to see mm-hmm. if there's anything bigger than, than expected, basically. And right. So we should get out of surfboards no, yet, we're, huh? we're unlikely to see anything with this, anything very big with this. We'll probably see it with LISA, which is a space-based experiment that's, mm. that's in the works mm-hmm. that involves three satellites and a triangle that sort of bounce laser light, laser light between the three of them, which is an even more kind of impressive I, thing to I do. I always thought the answer lied with triangles somewhere. Yeah, these are, <laughs> these are, this, this, these are impressive things yeah. that they're doing here, but uh, they have put sort of limits on how big these gravitational waves can be by having mm-hmm. not seen anything. And and again, they'll look again, uh, I guess, next year with ten times more sensitivity and maybe see something. All right. But uh, this just came out at the American Physical Society meeting last week. So if people want to know more about it, they'll have to wait around for journal articles. But they can go to the website at www.ligo.caltech.edu. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Professor Samir Zeki will join us to discuss art and the brain. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, art and the brain, the question of what constitutes great art continues to stir up much debate. Indeed, attempts to codify the traits of great art may be impossible. Or is it? Perhaps some of the answer may lie in understanding how our brains process visual images. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks to discuss these issues of art and the brain is Professor Samir Zeki. Professor Zeki is professor of neurobiology in the U- University of London. His work has concentrated on the visual brain. He has written many articles on vision and the brain, and two books entitled A Vision of the Brain and Inner Vision, an Exploration of Art and the Brain. He is a fellow of the Royal Society and a foreign member of the American Philosophical Society. Most recently, his work has started to inquire into the neurobiological foundations of art and aesthetics. Professor Zeki, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Well, thank you for having me. Well, you were out here a while back giving a very interesting talk about art in the brain. And I'm just curious if you can inform our listeners a little bit about what do you think some of the uh, properties of the visual brain are that help it to appreciate great art. Well, the first thing to say is what is the function of the visual brain? And the the function of the visual brain is to acquire knowledge about the world. And the acquisition of that knowledge is really basically done in three broad stages, just for the purpose of, of classification and clarity. One is the purpose of abstraction, whereby the particular point of view or the lighting condition or the distance no longer matters because you really want to recognize a house as a house, irrespective of what point of view you look at it from or what lighting condition you look at it from. And so abstraction is, is a process whereby you emphasize the general at the expense of the particular. Now, from that, you build a category of houses so that the particular is entirely irrelevant. And wherever you go, you can classify something as a house or as a car or as a, a chair. And the brain then builds up an ideal from the many experiences of individual houses or chairs it has had. Now, this is a necessary step in the acquisition of knowledge. The artist tries to portray the ideal that his brain has built up onto canvas so that in the end, a great art is what, let us suppose you have a painting of, of a house, a great painting will not be really restricted to depiction of a single house, but would be characteristic of the whole species of houses, or right? it, it fits people's concept of a house. So you have a definition within what I have said of great art. Great art is that which fits as many different ideals in as many different brains over as long a period of time as possible. That would be my definition of great art. Uh, You have to understand that the building up of a concept has got serious consequences for the brain because when you build up a concept of, say, a car or a house, that is built up from your experience of many particular cars or houses. But the daily or hourly or minute-by-minute experience that you have of a house or a car is of a particular car or a house. And that may not fit the concept, the synthetic concept that your brain has built up of many, many different cars or houses. And art then becomes a sort of a refuge in which you can express not the reality but your concept, the concept your brain has built up. And if the concept that your brain has built up happens to resonate with different concepts in different brains over a long period of time, then you have succeeded in providing great art. And what I'm really also implying is that the function of art is really an extension of the function of the brain, namely the acquisition of knowledge. I see. So would you say then that perhaps there might be a limit to uh, the level of abstraction that could be considered great art? 
I think there are limits, but these limits are imposed by the brain. What was the, I mean, let's take something which is, which in most people's language would be considered to be abstract art, namely the art of Mondrian. These consist of, of straight lines, usually vertical and horizontal, which intersect and give you rectangles. Now, the, one of the essential questions that Mondrian was asking was, what are the essential forms that are the constituents of all forms? So he was basically looking for the, the constant element in form, which is his concept of a form. And uh, it so happens he came up with the vertical and the horizontal line. And it so happens that these are not only the easiest lines to perceive, but there are a lot of cells in the brain which are specialized, which are specialized to detect vertical and horizontal lines. In fact, lines of different orientation. But there are cells that respond to lines which are oriented. Now, that abstraction of, of uh, Mondrian and I believe was strictly, strictly dictated by the physiology of the brain. And does this extend then as well to other fields? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I think um, in music, the melody and the harmony uh, and the the tempi, the times, are, I think, dictated by the uh, organization of the brain. The same is true, really, of literature. I mean, let us take a, a great figure in literature, right? Let us take, for example, Anna Karenina or uh, Madame Bovary, if you want, or Fed, you know, Hamlet. These are all uh, figures that are universal in the sense that they fit different concepts in different people's minds of what a person like that would be like. I mean, the uh, tragedy of Fed, uh, I'm talking about Fed by Jean Racine, uh, the tragedy of a woman who's imprisoned by biological desire when she knows that what she is doing is morally wrong. Now, this is a tragedy that uh, fits many different people in many different ages. You see, there's a, a universality about it. It fits many different concepts. You, you, all you have to do is to change the scenery a bit and the setting, and you have got the same dilemma in a different situation, which is why a play like uh, like Fed or a play like Hamlet has lasted for so long and is still even appreciated today. Because the uh, sort of universal values that humans share throughout time are just constantly repeated then. Yes, yes. These are universal values. But you see, when you uh, use the term universal values, what you're admitting of two things. First of all, that it is a value that many people have. That's why it's universal. And it's the same value that many people have. And the other reason why the same value that many people have is that we essentially have the same kind of brain organization. So we tend to emphasize a great deal the fact that our brains differ. And we say that because our subjective experiences we assume are different. We don't emphasize enough the fact that there are such similarities about our brains that we can communicate through art and about art without the use of the written or the spoken word. If I want to show you a very, very magnificent work of visual art, I can take you to Rome and show you the Pieta of Michelangelo. I don't have to describe it. And in fact, indeed, if I described it or if I talked to you about it, you would not have the same intense feeling as when you saw it. I couldn't possibly begin to describe to you some of the works of Beethoven. You have to listen to them. And the fact that you can appreciate them and I can appreciate them, and so many people over so uh, long a period of time in so many different countries and in so many different backgrounds have appreciated these is the most eloquent proof of all of how, at a certain level, of, at an important level of observation, how similar the structure of our brains are. And uh, perhaps more of a uh, philosophical question, why do you think the brains have evolved then to express ideas in this manner? 
I don't think the brain has evolved to express these ideas. I think the brain has, has evolved in such a way as to acquire knowledge. And in the process, it has performed by products. I mean, the musical communication is not either unique to man or unique to modern man. It has been it's there in birds and crickets and all sorts of other animals. But it has been with man since the dawn of mankind. The same thing is true of art. Cavemen painted and you can get a very good knowledge through painting. Uh, you, you, if you talk to artists, if you talk, talk to artists, they are the good ones to talk to. They will tell you how much they learn about an object, about form from painting. Cezanne spent uh, all his time looking at the determinants of form and obtained a great deal of knowledge about forms. So it is a byproduct of the fact that we have got a brain whose function, I mean, among its very important functions, is that of acquiring knowledge. And art is a way of acquiring knowledge. Look, when the Velasquez painting of Juan de Perea, which is now at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, when it was first exhibited in Rome, critics said that this painting alone is the truth. The others are just paintings. Now, what do they mean by this is the truth? They are able to get some knowledge about the character through the painting. And the painting of, of the mulatto servant that Velasquez did represents a character. It's not just a man. It represents a whole species of, of men who have got that kind of character. It represents a truth about them. It gives you knowledge about the character. So sort of the dual capacity of the brain for acquiring knowledge and yet also for abstraction as well. Well, abstraction is a part of the knowledge acquiring apparatus. Mm -hmm. You cannot acquire knowledge except through the process of abstraction. And why is that? It is because really in a sense of the limited capacity of the brain to recall every detail of everything it has seen. Huh. Well, it certainly sounds like a very fascinating theory. Um, just to switch gears a little here, uh, I'm just curious, how did you as a neuroscientist become interested in trying to explain art in terms of the operations of the brain? Uh, I had the strong sense that if after having studied the brain in so much detail, because I was an anatomist and I was a physiologist and I did psychophysics, and then I now do imaging, uh, if I had studied the brain in so much detail and cannot say anything useful about uh, what happens in the visual brain when we get involved in one of the noblest of human activities, namely the appreciation and the creation, above all the creation of works of art, then I have, in a sense, I have uh, failed, really. But I'm also motivated by the fact that I, I am actually interested in art, and I do go to lots of art galleries, and I try to make sense of what I see. And so it seemed to me it, that I was uniquely placed, knowing as much as I did about the human visual brain, the primate visual brain, I was uniquely placed to say something about visual art, which I appreciate so much. Yeah. And that's how I got into it. It was really a sort of um, partly my interest and also partly my belief that a scientist who's studying things like vision should, should be able to say something important, which is beyond the details about the purpose of vision. After all, you know, a very substantial part of our brains is visual. So how have your uh, ideas been taken, I guess, with the art community? Well, the art community on the whole has been very hospitable. I would say that, that I have had a very, very hospitable uh, uh, reception of these from, from all sources. Uh, perhaps uh, the people who have been slightly more reticent have been the, the art historians. 
Um, I think I understand why. I think they sort of uh, feel it a, a bit a bit odd uh, that that you can think in terms of art, in terms of uh, really the functions and functioning of the brain, rather than of something out there, beauty lying out there, which is entirely separate from the brain. I, this is the impression I get. I know that the uh, director of the Getty Center in, in Los Angeles was actually quite outraged about this kind of approach and, and said so publicly. But on the whole, we have had a very, very hospitable reaction. And interestingly, the most hospitable reaction has come from the artists themselves. Well, it looks like we're running a little bit out of time. I guess just sort of as a final note, how are you uh, continuing to pursue, I guess, this interest in developing your ideas? Well, we're pursuing it in a number of different ways. We are pursuing it experimentally by looking at what happens in the brain when people create works of art, when people perceive works of art in different kinds of art. We are also pursuing it trying to educate a new generation of people to be interested in this new field of neuroesthetics. So we're going to have a course in London and base lots of neuroesthetic activities in London. But we're also pursuing, as you know, our annual meetings in neuroesthetics at Berkeley, California. And, you know, in this way, we hope to generate more and more interest. We're, we're organizing an exhibition in Brain Awareness Week in Trieste in Italy. We're putting another one in Locarno in honor of a great Italian artist, Piero Doraccio. So we're doing a lot of things along these lines, which we can bring scientists, neurobiologists, and artists together. And by the way, neurobiologists have got a great deal to learn from artists because artists use the brain to produce their product. And so a neurobiologist has got a very great deal to learn from an artist as to how the brain works. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, Professor Zeki, we are definitely out of time, but I would just like to thank you very much for a fascinating discussion and join us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Professor Samir Zeki of University College London discussing his ideas of art and the brain. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out why do plugs have three prongs. So stay tuned. FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what that third prong is for? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why some plugs have three prongs? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Whether or not a plug has two or three prongs usually depends on whether your appliance has a plastic case or a metal case. A plastic appliance like your radio typically needs only two prongs, while metal appliances like your microwave oven usually need three in order to make them safe. To find out why, let's follow a current of electricity through this microwave, which is plugged into the wall. When somebody turns the microwave on, the electricity flows from the electrical supply in the wall into one of the two regular prongs on the plug, up the wire and into the microwave. 
It then travels through the microwave, back down the wire, and into the wall through the second prong. This continuous circular path, called an electrical circuit, is what keeps an appliance running. But what about that third prong? That's what keeps the appliance grounded, which means literally it connects the case of the appliance to a metal pole or water pipe somewhere outside the house, which is embedded in the ground. See, if a wire in the microwave malfunctions or becomes overloaded, it could be very dangerous because the metal case conducts electricity. And if you touch it, yikes, don't do that. If you did, electricity would enter your hand and flow down through your legs until it hits the ground, and that would be one heck of a serious shock. Good thing our microwave had the third prong, allowing any wayward electricity to travel through it, leave the house, and flow safely into the ground. Well, thanks for plugging in today and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Oh, everyday science lady. I wish you'd help me ground my prongs. All right, and now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week. Yo, and so now it's the time for the answer to last week's question of the week. Why do you guys have the daylight savings time? You know, this is sort of a mystery to all these people of all over the world. It's this, this thing, daylight savings time, what the heck is it for? Well, you know, the idea was that, well, the idea is anyway, is that in the past and the few, and the, you know, when there was no electricity and all these things with the light bulbs and all these craziness that they have, you needed more daylight to work later in the day. And so, you know, if you're agriculture, you're farming, you're going, oh, my goodness, I need to farm some more. It's dark. Well, you just change the cooks. And so that's what they did. And so you can work later, and you don't have to burn as many candle lights, and it's great. And that's why they had the daylight savings time. Okay, and now here's a Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. Why do we have a fingernail, and what is it made of? If you know the answer, or just think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but you'll be able to scratch that place you always want to scratch. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to email us, you can do that at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Franklin. You can also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.